We are studying Psalm 119, as you know, and this has been a wonderful study for us. Um, as you know, the Bible has many different forms of literature within. Um, we have narrative, which is stories. Old Testament's full of narrative. There's some narrative in the New Testament, but the, the bulk of it is in the Old Testament when we read stories about David and Samson and, and Elijah. These are all narrative um, forms of literature. We also have letter form of literature, epistolary, these New Testament epistles, where Paul's writing letters to individuals and to churches. These are different forms of literature. We also have prophetical or prophecy literature. You read this in Daniel and Revelation and so forth. You, you, you hear the, the author prophesying about what will come. It's a different form of literature. And all these forms of literature, of course, require different uh, methods of interpretation, different ways to read it, different ways to understand it. The form of literature that we find ourselves in now in the book of Psalms is poetry. And not all of us appreciate poetry like we should. Um, some people are consumed by it and love it and can't keep themselves from it. Uh, most of us are not that way. There are some that are, but most of us are not that way. We need to learn to appreciate poetry. And the reason we need, especially here, need to learn to appreciate poetry is because we're more concerned with the teaching. What's it say? How can I change my life? What can I do better? Right? That's what generally how we might respond to Scripture. Not all of us, but most of us. But all of us need to learn to appreciate poetry because poetry, God uses poetry to draw us from an intellectual relationship with himself to a passionate, heart-experienced relationship with himself. The Psalms are full of poetry. The Psalms are poetry. And it's here in the Psalms where we learn to deal with our senses, with our feelings, as it relates to God, which is out of our comfort zone as Reformed Christians, right? And so that's one of the reasons I have decided, have decided to teach Psalm 119. Because all you people are theological brainiacs, and you need to learn to engage your heart. I your German pastor needs to learn to engage his heart. It's, it's here where we, we uh, are drawn by the Holy Spirit through the use of poetry to experience God. We read in the Psalms that we see his glory. We see it with our eyes. We, we hear his praises. We taste and see that he's good. We feel the warmth of the sun. We smell the aroma of the rose. This we discover in the Psalms, and God uses these senses of ours that he's given us for this very purpose, to experience him on a level that your mind alone cannot do. We need Psalm 119 very much. 
We need to look for the, the poetic rhythm here that the author uses to draw us into the experience, capital E, of God. So this is an attempt to engage our heart, to engage the right brain um, versus the left. In the first stanza that we've already covered, uh, the author begins this great chapter, Psalm 119, uh, by trying to hook you into reading the rest of the psalm. And I think to hook you into reading all of Scripture. And he does it like this. Do you want to be happy? That's, a, that's an important question to all of us, isn't it? And of course, we all have the same answer. Yes, I want to be happy. Then the psalmist says, then listen up. <laughs> I'm going to show you, not just tell you, but show you how you can be happy. And of course, he says uh, that God can be experienced personally. Those who faithfully walk with God experientially will be happy. Those who pursue holiness on a practical level will be happy. Stanza, chapter, stanza two, stanza one. So seeking God with the whole heart is mentioned in the second verse of each stanza. Do you notice that? Look at verse two. I'll seek him with my whole heart. Those who seek him with their whole heart. Look at verse 10. These are the second verses of each stanza. This is the, the rhythm of the author that he's trying to get you to experience. In verse 10, which is the second verse of the second stanza, with my whole heart I seek you. And so the author here is telling us that the key to happiness, the key to holiness, is this pursuit of God with a whole heart. There's a spiritual rhythm here that, that he wants you to feel. He wants you to engage your soul. And he wants you to see that if you're going to, to actually experience happiness, which we all desire, you must follow the directions he's giving. So he says, with my whole heart, in verse 10, I seek you, God, with my whole heart. Why seek God? Why seek God? This is the question the author wants us to wrestle with. This is the question every parent must answer for their children if they want their children to follow God. Why seek God? And your answer better not be, because I said so. Every parent must answer this question for their children. Every church must answer this question for their attendees. Every individual must answer that question if they're going to experience God. Why seek God? What would your answer be? Why seek God? This is the answer. Why, why must we seek him? Why not just spend our youth having a grand old time? Why not 
spend your life trying to make a lot of money so you can buy a lot of things and have as much fun as possible. Why not that? Why not try to take as many vacations to as many possible exotic locations as possible before you die? Why not try to check off your 25-point bucket list? Why not? Why not just live for yourself? Get all you can, can all you get, sit on the lid and enjoy it. Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that a happy and fulfilled life can only be found in knowing God. And knowing God can only happen if you seek him with your whole heart. No half-hearted effort will do. That's the point here of the second stanza. You want to be happy? You better know God. You want to know God? You better seek him with your whole heart. God rewards those who earnestly seek him, the author of Hebrews tells us. So here's why we seek God with our whole heart. First, it's why we are created. You see that? Um, Our birth is just not a random act of chance. We, we were specifically created by God to pursue and worship him. This is what Jesus said in John 4. The Father is gathering or seeking worshipers. This is why you were created. To seek God. To worship the one you seek. This is such an important thing that so many miss. In the book of Human Bondage, it says, these old folk had done nothing, and when they died, it would be just as if they had never been. And Jim Elliott's response to that was, Lord, deliver me. We don't want to be those kind of people, do we, Christian? People who live and die As if they had never been? Friends, we want to know God. We want to be used of God. We want to make a difference in this world. We don't just want to be a name on a list. Lord, deliver me. God is gathering worshipers. God has created everything to be incomplete without him. It's like that genius scientist who creates something that unless he is in the room, it doesn't work. He's got the knowledge in his head that makes this thing work. This is what God has done to each and every individual. Each and every thing. Nothing works without God. We were made for him, and we will never find fulfillment, peace, joy, contentment, which we were designed to enjoy until we find God. This is why material things really never satisfy you or me. This this is why we're constantly looking for something new, something else, something different. 
we remain discontent until God. And this is what Augustine meant when he said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, but our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This is why you were created. This is why you never feel satisfaction until you fulfill the point of your creation. Secondly, it's, it's what we do. Why do we seek God? It's because this is what we were created for. And secondly, it's what we do. We seek. We, we are natural seekers. God has created us as creatures of desire. Every single person in this room can attest to this. You want stuff. You're a wanter, a seeker. And it's, it's amazing that we are careful to pursue the things that we want. The thing that we perceive to be of value, we pursue those things, don't we? If you want to go on vacation to Hawaii, what do you do? You sacrifice, you save up, you plan, you go after it, and guess what? You end up doing it. If you want to run a marathon, you're crazy, but I don't, if you do, <laughs> if you do, what do you do? You prepare, you diet, you exercise, you plan, you go on runs, and you do it. Here's the point. Everybody in this room is pursuing what they want. The reason you're here is because you want something. The reason you go to work is because you want something. The reason you're nice to your spouse is because you want something. And this is true of all of us. God has created us to be creatures of desire. So, if God is the best there is, if he is the ultimate thing, wouldn't it make sense to pursue him, to want him? If God is the greatest good, then shouldn't our greatest desire be him? Unfortunately, the disconnect for many Christians is that we know in our minds that God is all that he claims to be, but our hearts are yet convinced. Right? What the world offers is tangible. It affects our senses. We can feel it. We can smell the new car smell. We can see and hear the things that the world's offering. They're tangible. But God is intangible, which is why the psalmist is trying to draw us in to an emotional experience of God, because he knows these things. God knows these things. Um, whatever you're spending your life on, friends, is what is of most value to you. Think about it for a moment. What is it that you're spending your life on? That is what is of most value to you. That is what you want. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is. The greatest sacrilege is when we brashly come to God and ask for things in order to replace him. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? We come to the source of all good and ask for trinkets so that we can replace the source of all good with trinkets. You see, God is the most valuable whether or not we believe it. 
Well, we know it up here, Christians, don't we? But belief comes from the heart. Do we truly believe what we say we do? A sign of great wisdom, friends, is to seek God above other things. Just because you hide from the sunlight doesn't diminish the sun's light, does it? You, you crouch down behind a rock doesn't mean the sun is less bright. Of course not. God is not diminished in any way by our neglect or by our unbelief. He remains God, the best, the, 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 the most valuable in all of the universe. It just reveals our ignorance and foolishness of our hearts when we neglect him or when we truly don't pursue him. If we're chasing stuff in this world instead of God, it proves our ignorance and foolishness. Because God is obviously better than stuff. When we seek things in life over God, what we're actually doing is running away from the source of true and lasting happiness. How smart is that? Psalm twenty-two twenty-six says that those who seek God will praise his name. Why? Why do you think Psalm 22, 26 tells us that those who seek God will praise his name? I think they'll praise his name because of the abundance of blessing that will come with seeking him. I think they're going to praise his name because they believe <clears throat> that an experience with God is better than things. They believe that communion with the creator, with the almighty God, is better than stuff. That's why they praise his name. God rewards those who seek him. Their hearts are full. Since we're creatures of desire, God's created us that way, and our desires have been tainted by sin, we desire wrong stuff, don't we? We, we exchange the glory of God for things, which is what Romans 1 says. But when we come to Christ, something is supposed to happen to our desires, right? It's called regeneration, conversion. God changes our heart's desires. And we begin to see the glory of Christ and the beauty of God. And it becomes, the longer we're walking with Christ, more and more and more attractive. God changes us. Seeking God, according to Psalm 24, 6, is the true mark of God's people. It says this, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. This is what God's people do. <laughs> we seek him. This is the defining mark, the hallmark of those who claim Christ. You seeking him? You're either seeking God or you're wandering from him. There's only two options. Why do we seek God? Because what's we've been created to do. We're, we're seekers. We're we by nature desire stuff. Next, it's it's what we need. You know this, life is passing, 
you're not getting any younger. The day that you will stand before God is closer than it was yesterday. Uh, the prophet Hosea understood this. In chapter 10, he said that Israel had spent enough time pursuing things that, that weren't producing spiritual benefit. Israel had spent enough time away from God. It was time to right the ship, Hosea said. Uh, it's time to seek God. Why, what's it going to take for you to give up these foolish and ignorant pursuits, Hosea was saying? And is that apropos for our day or not? How long are you going to pursue meaningless things that actually bring no joy? The things you're seeking, happiness, joy, contentment, peace, you keep striking out, you keep striking out, it's about time to change the strategy is what Hosea is saying to us. You, you have denied God's right long enough, and you have missed out on the joy he provides long enough. <laughs> it's what we need. Next, it's the only reasonable response. It's the only reasonable response to difficulty Who else are you going to seek for help in times of trial? When the doctor gives you that bad report, there's nothing else I can do. Then where are you going to run? What are you going to do when your spouse comes to you and said, I've had it? What are you going to do when you're out of tricks to convince your kids of things? What are you going to do when you don't have enough money to get through the month? The wise person runs to Christ, right? In difficulty. It's the only reasonable response to all of Scripture. This is what Psalm 19, 119 is saying. And the only reasonable thing for the believer, for the one who claims Christ, is to be in the Word. It's the only reasonable response to life. I've already mentioned parenting, vocation, evangelism. Seeking God is the only reasonable response to evangelism. Do you know why most Christians do not share their faith? Do you know why? Some say because they're afraid. They're, they're, they're afraid of rejection. Others say because they don't know enough about God. But here is the answer on why most people don't share their faith. This blue thing. This blue thing is an amazing invention. I use it almost every day. Look at this thing. The guy who sells it says this, oh, baby, that feel good. <laughs> this is why most Christians don't share their faith. They don't believe it works. I bought that because I was convinced it works. The guy sold me on it because it works. 
The reason we don't share our faith is we're, we're not sure that God is the best. And, and I can prove this to you. Every time you get a diet that works, what's the first thing you do? You tell somebody about it. You put it on Facebook. You wear nice clothes that demonstrate the value of that diet. Whenever you get some food that really tastes good and yet is low in calories, you tell people about it. Whenever you find a mechanic that fixes your vehicle for a fair price, you tell people about it. You believe. The reason you don't share your faith is because you're not sure God works. You're not convinced. If you were, you'd share it. Fear would go out the door. Do you think your mechanics can be, do the perfect repair every time? No, but you still share. There might be a little fear there, but you push past the fear and tell people about your diet. It may not work for them, but it worked for you, and so you share. The reason we don't share is we're not sure. So let's get down to how we can seek God with our whole heart. How can you do it? What does it mean to seek God? Well, we've already addressed this a few weeks ago when I covered this whole stanza. I shared with you the idea of store up, speak out, delight in, meditate on. Remember that? Um, but let me fill that out a little bit. I don't know about you, but I can check off all the appropriate boxes in my daily Christian discipline routine and still not be seeking God. And you can do the same. You get through your Bible reading. You pray your prayer. Bless, bless the missionaries. And then you go on into life because you're busy. And you can live an even pretty balanced life but you're not seeking God, even though you read your Bible and you prayed. In private, no less. Um, Psalm 27.8 says this, You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. You notice that he didn't say, My mouth. He said, My heart. What's the point? All of you is involved. It's a wholehearted pursuit. Love the Lord your God with all your might, strength. This is consuming your life. With my whole life, with my whole being, I will seek your face, is what the psalmist is saying in chapter 27. So let me ask a question. Why are you here today? Why did people follow Jesus back in the first century? I'll tell you why. Because he could make bread out of nothing and heal people whenever he wanted. That's a good guy to hang around. Just think, whenever you're hungry or sick, boom, you'd hang around him too. Guess how many people hung around him because of what he said? Eleven. Everybody else was there for a handout. 
So why are you here on Sunday? Are you here for Jesus' sake? To deepen your walk with him? To experience uh, more vibrant communion with your creator? Do you read your Bible for those reasons? Or do you read your Bible so you can check it off? Hosea, again, chapter 7, says this about people's motives for seeking God, for going to church, for doing their private disciplines. They do not cry for me from the heart with their whole being, no, but they wail in their beds for grain and wine. They actually were wailing. They were crying before the Lord because they were hungry and wanted wine. They wanted stuff, and they knew God could provide it. That was their motive. So we need to examine why we do the spiritual things we do, assuming you do them. What's your motive behind attending church, small group, or even opening your Bible in private? Is your answer anything other than growing deeper in Christ and communing with God? If so, you're not seeking him with your whole heart. We used to own a cat, past tense, um, named Tony. His original name was Samba, and Sherry found this cat um, by a dumpster down by Safeway on Fifth Avenue. It was exciting for me when she brought it home. <laughs> this cat was a mange master. I mean, uh, disease. And anyways, after we cleaned him up, took him to the vet, got all this stuff done, we got to know this cat, Samba, a little bit better. And our son, T David, decided to uh, rename this cat Tony after the character Tony Montana in Scarface. This cat was tough, man. This cat was an alley cat. This cat was sly, just like Tony Montana. Anyways, Tony was generally a respectful cat until he got hungry. Um, when Tony got hungry, he would wander through our house howling, literally howling, as if in some significant pain. And then you'd feed him, he'd quiet down, and then go on ignoring you. <laughs> but until then, it was a circus. Just like a lot of Christians. Many people act this way with God. The only time they seek God is when they're really hungry, or in a tight spot, or a major crisis. And then when God comes and does his thing, we continue ignoring him. That's not seeking God with the whole heart. That's faulty motives. The stuff Hosea was addressing. Truly seeking God must be done in sincerity. This means seeking God because you want God. <laughs> not his stuff. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. God does provide stuff. He does offer reward, which is the, the carrot for us. 
He offers peace. He offers joy and happiness and contentment, those things that are basically the desire of every human. He offers those things. But I'm asking you to evaluate the stuff you want. Why are you pursuing God? Is it so that he'll keep you healthy, wealthy, and in the comfort of the American dream? Are you seeking God because he's God? If you want to seek God, do the following. Pray, read, do the Christian disciplines. There's, there's nothing profound here, in case you were hoping for the answer. Well, it's the same answer that's always been. Pray, read, do the church, do the Christian disciplines. Be in church, serve, love others. Right here in verse 10 and in verse 12, we, we see the prayer of a God seeker, don't we? He says, with my whole heart I seek you. He's praying. Let me not wander from your commandments. Verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. He's praying, pleading with God for a deeper relationship with him. So we must pray. We must read. Charles Bridges said this, attention to the word, however important, which is very important, can never be practically effective without earnest prayer. Friends, we've got to learn to pray as Christians. We've got to learn to commune with God, to speak with him. If we do all the other spiritual disciplines well, give, serve, attend, read, and neglect prayer, we will always fall short of the full experience of God. Prayer is a key, if you want a key, to the deeper life, walking with Christ. And how are we supposed to pray in order to seek God fully? Teach me to pray, Pastor John. Does that statement sound interesting and and familiar to you? Maybe if you leave the Pastor John part out. Teach me to pray, Jesus, is what his disciples asked him. Remember that? Luke 11, Matthew 6. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. <clears throat> I'm going to give you some suggestions. These are some of my favorite books. Um, that will help you in walking with Christ and seeking God with your whole heart. A uh, method for prayer. A method for prayer. We, we may have some, I'm not sure, by Matthew Henry. You want to know how to pray? Read. <laughs> uh, Timothy Keller on prayer. This is more uh, contemporary, obviously, but... Um, this is more about the heart of prayer. This is more about the, the details of prayer. They're both valuable and should be in your library. Not just in your library, it should be open and you should read them. 
Don't think that just buying a book and putting it in your library works. I thought that for a long time. It doesn't work. Uh, since we're talking about books you should be reading, uh, this book here is one of my all-time favorites, The Pursuit of God by E.W. Tozer. This guy was heavily influenced by the Keswick movement, which was the higher life holiness movement. He wasn't one of them, but he was hi highly influenced by them. And their whole idea was, was experiential fellowship with God. That's what Tozer deals with. You want to walk with God in a way that you can look forward to and can't wait to get back to? Tozer on the pursuit of God. You need to read it yesterday. Um, you want to know why God is worthy of all this attention? Right here, John Owen's book, The Glory of Christ. This is a little more challenging than the other three, but man, this is worth its weight in gold. Okay, so uh, let's say you're struggling to read the Bible regularly. Open up Tozer's Pursuit of God and read this first and then go to the Bible. Open up the glory of Christ and then go to Scripture and your life will begin to change. Amazingly. So what, what are we going to do to seek God? We're going to do the Christian disciplines. Read, pray, give, serve, love, all those things. Next, we need to do this throughout the day, all day, every day. Psalm 105, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually, all day, every day, throughout the day. You know, um, you're going to say, well, I can't read the Bible and meditate and be in prayer while I'm teaching in my classroom. Um, well, you can still make Christ your ultimate focus throughout the day by your setting of heart, by the setting of your mind, by the preparing for your teaching, um, by <clears throat> getting to a spiritual place of communion with God so that your heart and mind will be set in the right place before you do this project at work. And so you'll always be seeking to do that particular job in a way that glorifies God and, and brings you into deeper fellowship and communion with him by, by way of his pleasure. Colossians 3, whatever you do, work at it hardly is for the Lord, not men. Whatever you do, whether you're a teacher, a fireman, policeman, whatever you do, work as it Work as unto the Lord. And this brings up the next point. We do it importunately. Not, import, not importantly, importunately. That means persistently. That means unrelenting. That means never giving up. I think the reason so many Christians give up on the pursuit of God is because they try to pursue him for a season, get discouraged with lack of progress, or lack of spiritual experience, and give up on it. After getting out of bed early for two straight weeks, I don't feel anything except tired. Well, seeking God cannot be accomplished, friends, if, at least if it's wholehearted seeking. It cannot be accomplished successfully with short spurts of guilt-driven effort. Seeking God requires a marathon mentality. 
It's a spiritual turtle that wins the race, not the hare. Think of your spiritual life as a, as a great reservoir. The, the goal of the Christian life is to slowly but surely fill this reservoir with the things of God. And after a while, you will notice that the level of this reservoir is rising. You've got to have the marathon mentality. You expect to try this walking with God thing for two weeks, you'll be right back where you start. Which is why you need to be in church, which is why you need to be in fellowship with Christians, which is why we encourage you to be in small groups, so that you can faithfully, regularly, throughout every day, seek God importunately. And then next, seek God in Christ. Hebrews 7.25 makes this clear that it must, we must seek God in Christ. We can't seek God on our own, in our own, of our own. No, Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save, that is God, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him through him. Through whom? Christ. Your only access to God is Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Remember what Jesus said about this? No one can come to the Father, Father God, but through me. We must come to God in Christ. We're only acceptable to him in Christ. And God is infinitely interested in Christ and showering blessings on Christ. And when we're in Christ, we get in the way of those blessings. We get blessed simply because we're near Christ. We're in Christ. Manton said, none can seek him rightly but those that seek him in Christ. So look for Christ in the scriptures when you read. Speak regularly to Christ in your prayers. Acknowledge the goodness of Christ and thank him for his work on your behalf. Praise the Father for giving the Son. Ask the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to deepen your love for Christ. Speak to Christ. Speak of Christ. Be with Christ. Be in Christ. So, to go back to our little <clears throat> lilt, store up the glories of Christ, speak out the glories of Christ, delight in and meditate on the glories of Christ daily. This book will help you do that, The Glories of Christ by John Owen. Next, we see in verse 10, a warning. I've tried to explain to you what it means to seek God with your whole heart. Now I want to give you the same warnings that were in the mind of the author here when he penned the second half of verse 10. See what it says? Let me not wander from your commandments, his plea. Why does he pray that? I'm going to show you two things. The first is because we have a tendency to wander. <laughs> All of us. The longer we walk with God, the more we recognize the danger and tendency to walk away from him, to drift away from him. You know, when you first come to Christ, there's a tendency to focus on externals. There are these obvious sins that, that God begins to address in your life as you begin to experience this, this um, conforming to the image of Christ experience. Uh, sins like, external sins like drunkenness, lying, gossip, 
et cetera, things that everyone can see, those are things fall into this category. Those are external sins that, that God begins to deal with immediately when you first come to him. But as you mature in Christ, your focus begins to shift from those external obvious sins to the more internal and secret sins, the more difficult sins, the more deceptive sins, sins like greed, bitterness, envy, heart-heartedness, and heart-heartedness would include lack of generosity, lack of prioritizing others, um, mediocrity, lack of love to Christ. Those are all things people can't see. Those are the things that the Spirit, after he's worked on external things, begins to work on. Those kind of sins have always been there, these internal sins, but the Holy Spirit works in progression. When you first come to him, he starts knocking down those external things that are obvious, and then he begins to work on the internal things. And the time between the external and the internal, many Christians just stop. They just think, well, I'm good now. I don't get drunk anymore. I don't, I don't lose my temper at the softball game anymore. I'm, I'm good. And yet, the tip of the iceberg is the only thing that's been dealt with. <laughs> The things that made you angry, the things that, that, that made you drunkard, are all those things that remain unsanctified. <laughs> and so the Holy Spirit begins to work on those things, and, and we need to join him in that process. Sanctification, or conforming to the image of Christ is another way to say that, is a joint effort between you and the Holy Spirit. God intentionally does not bring you this comprehensive list of your sins the day you come to Christ for obvious reasons. He, he begins to bring them to the surface as he sees fit. Uh, Holy Spirit knows you and he decides when and which ones to deal with. And so the more you grow in Christ, the more you realize that this corruption of your soul is, is about the internal more than the external. You, you can see this drift in your heart that you may never have recognized before. You begin to realize that your lack of love for Christ and your lack of love for others is underneath all your problems. And the reason for this progression in the spiritual life from external to internal is as follows. Here are the reasons that the Holy Spirit works this way. First, communion with God brings more light. The longer you walk with God, the more you know him. And the more you, the, the more you know of his glory, the more you see of him, taste him, and feel him. And this is the case across the board. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know, a lot of times we read that verse, we think, well, yeah, sure, when we get to heaven, we'll see God. No, they'll see God now, not physically. They'll experience him. Blessed are the pure in heart. Friends, your knowledge of God is in direct proportion to your faithful walk with him. The more you obediently walk with God, the more you know his heart and see his glory. And this affects your view of your own sin. This is why we keep trying to get you, when we get together on Sunday morning, to get past the externals and dig into the internal recesses of your soul. Let me bring you to the point of confession. Next is love for God creates a greater love for him. And it's a, it's a wonderful spiraling upward relationship. The more you love God, the more you get to know him. The more you love God, the less you sin. The, and this is, many uh, 
married couples feel this thing, right? The, the longer you're with your spouse, the more you love them. Why is that? When they become less attractive, you actually love them more. How is that? That was supposed to be from the women to the men. I didn't mean to offend any women in here. Well, the reason I love Sherry more is because I know her more. The more we get to know God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the more we love him. It's, it's a wonderful upward spiral. The, the more we love God, the more we'll obey him, 1 John 5, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And the more you keep his commandments, the more you love him. The more you love him, the more you keep his commandments. And on it goes. And the more we love God, the less we'll be able to easily just dismiss sin in our life, even the hidden ones. Next, spiritual growth brings spiritual strength. This is not hard to understand. Full-grown men are generally more strong than children. Next, we're closer to seeing Jesus now. You knew that, right? First John 3, the apostles said, guess what? Jesus is coming back for us. And um, everybody who thinks about this will be ready for him. They'll purify themselves. You remember back when you used to date, or if you're still in that world, you know what you do when you date? You clean up before you go on the date. You actually take a bath and brush your teeth. You know, at least most of you do. Uh, we did. Why? <laughs> it's obvious why. This is why we live holy lives. It's because we're going to see Jesus soon. The second thing I want you to see in verse 10, the second half of verse 10, is that only God can keep us from wandering. You see that? That's why he's praying the prayer, because he knows only God can do it. The longer we walk with God, the more we recognize that only God can do this. Jesus said it. Without me, you can do nothing. Believing that you're self-sufficient is deadly in the Christian life. And I think this is a challenge for every Christian. No Christian is exempt from this. We all tend to wander. We all tend to drift away from God. Even if you don't plan to do so, that's the bent of our souls, even after having our regenerated heart. When we cease from consistent intake of God's words, there's going to be this natural drift. Uh, even though, you know, I, I enjoy fly fishing, even though I don't do it enough. And I've fly fished the Yakima River a few times with a friend in a drift boat. And on a couple occasions, I remember, we both caught a fish at the same time. And the most important thing became the, the catch, not the rowing. And lo and behold, guess what happened to the boat when no one's rowing in a river? You go places you don't want to go. You go up next to the bank, or you go up onto the rocks, or you go underneath some overhanging tree limbs. You, you find yourself in trouble. It's because the most basic part of fly fishing really is rowing the boat. And if you don't row the boat, you drift places. The same in the Christian life, friends. You, you have to row. If you just think you can drift and make it work, you're going to find yourself up against the bank high-centered on rocks, underneath some limbs, in a precarious situation. you got to row. The Bible's reference to us as sheep is not accidental. Sheep are prone to wander. Isaiah 53, 
All we like sheep, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned away everyone to his own way. Lord, help me not wander from your commandment. It's a simple prayer. Acknowledgement of our need. Psalm 119, the same psalm, verse 176. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servants another prayer, for I do not forget your commandments. We are his sheep. It doesn't mean we won't wander. It means we will wander. <laughs> we need to follow Christ. We need to submerge ourselves in the word. We need to submerge ourselves into the people with the people of the word. Um, friends, I, I, I just want you to um, seek God with your whole heart. Because um, I want you to be, um, I want you to experience the joy of doing that. And the um, uh, blessing of having God as an important ingredient in your life. Or maybe I should say it like this, having God as your life. Everything else is going to disappoint you. And I'm no ancient sage, but I've lived long enough to know that what I've just said is true. So... Do this. Let's seek God with our whole heart. Dependently. Right? Leaning on him for everything we need. Let's pray. Lord, I asked at the beginning of our time in the Word that your Spirit would visit us and minister to us. We're trusting that he did just that, that the people in this room have been pricked of heart, have been challenged in soul. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to apply your gentle pressure so that we would see our need and run to Christ and seek him with our whole heart. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.